Dear listener, welcome. Pull up a chair and join me by the fireplace. Once more, this is yours cruelly, Adam Hebert, here to give you this, your weekly dread. Thank you for joining me as we continue our journey through the annals of weird fiction. This week, we have something of a theme for the show. Books are truly wonderful things. They teach, they enlighten, they can take their reader to a whole other world. And some are used to contain eldritch horrors that could be unleashed upon the world. Our story this week is the work of a classic teller of the ghost story. Our twisted tale this week by British author M.R. James tells the story of an Englishman who manages to acquire a rare and mysterious manuscript from an official who runs an ancient decaying French cathedral. What is in this book, you might ask? Let us find out together in Canon Alberic's Scrapbook by M.R. James. I'll be back after to introduce this week's episode of the Magnus Archives. Scare and enjoy! Scrapbook by M.R. James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Canon Albrecht's Scrapbook by M.R. James. St. Bertrand de Comanges is a decayed town on the spurs of the Pyrenees, not very far from Toulouse, and still nearer to Bagnères de Luchon. It was the site of a bishopric until the Revolution, and has a cathedral which is visited by a certain number of tourists. In the spring of 1883, an Englishman arrived at this old-world place, 
I can hardly dignify it with the name of city, for there are not a thousand inhabitants. He was a Cambridge man, who had come specially from Toulouse to see St. Bertrand's Church, and had left two friends, who were less keen archaeologists than himself, in their hotel at Toulouse, under promise to join him on the following morning. Half an hour at the church would satisfy them, and all three could then pursue their journey in the direction of Auch. But our Englishman had come early on the day in question, and proposed to himself to fill a notebook, and to use several dozen plates in the process of describing and photographing every corner of the wonderful church that dominates the little hill of Comanche. In order to carry out this design satisfactorily, it was necessary to monopolise the verger of the church for the day. The verger, or sacristan, I prefer the latter appellation, inaccurate as it may be, was accordingly sent for by the somewhat brusque lady who keeps the inn of the Chapeau Rouge, and when he came, the Englishman found him an unexpectedly interesting object of study. It was not in the personal appearance of the little, dry, wizened old man that the interest lay, for he was precisely like dozens of other church guardians in France, but in a curious, furtive, or rather hunted and oppressed air which he had. He was perpetually half-glancing behind him. The muscles of his back and shoulders seemed to be hunched in a continual nervous contraction, as if he were expecting every moment to find himself in the clutch of an enemy. The Englishman hardly knew whether to put him down as a man haunted by a fixed delusion, or as one oppressed by a guilty conscience, or as an unbearably henpecked husband. The probabilities, when reckoned up, certainly pointed to the last idea, but still... The impression conveyed was that of a more formidable persecutor even than a termagant wife. However, the Englishman, let us call him Dennis Toon, was soon too deep in his notebook and too busy with his camera to give more than an occasional glance to the sacristan. Whenever he did look at him, he found him at no great distance, either huddling himself back against the wall or crouching in one of the gorgeous stalls. Dennis Toon became rather fidgety after a while, mingled suspicions that he was keeping the old man from his déjeuner, that he was regarded as likely to make away with St. Bertrand's ivory crozier, or with the dusty stuffed crocodile that hangs over the font, began to torment him. "'Won't you go home?' he said at last. "'I am quite well able to finish my notes alone. You can lock me in if you like. I shall want at least two hours more here, and it must be cold for you, isn't it?' "'Good heavens!' said the little man, whom the suggestion seemed to throw into a state of unaccountable terror. "'Such a thing cannot be thought of for a moment. Leave Monsieur alone in the church? No, no!' Two hours, three hours, all will be the same to me. I have breakfasted, I am not at all cold, with many thanks to monsieur. Very well, my little man, quoth Deniston to himself. You have been warned, and you must take the consequences. Before the expiration of the two hours, the stalls, the enormous dilapidated organ, the choir screen of Bishop Jean de Molian, the remnants of glass and tapestry, and the objects in the treasure chamber, had been well and truly examined. The sacristan, still keeping at Dennis Toon's heels, and every now and then whipping round as if he had been stung when one or other of the strange noises that trouble a large empty building fell on his ear. Curious noises they were, sometimes. Once, Deniston said to me, I could have sworn I heard a thin metallic voice laughing, high up in the tower. I darted an inquiring glance at my sacristan. He was white to the lips. It is he, that is, it is no one, the door is locked was all he said, and we looked at each other for a full minute. Another little incident puzzled Dennis Toon a good deal. He was examining a large, dark picture that hangs behind the altar, one of a series illustrating the miracles of St. Bertrand. The composition of the picture is well-nigh indecipherable, but there is a Latin legend below, which runs thus. 
Calite S. Bertrandus, Liberavit hominem quem diabolus du volebat strangulaire. How St. Bertram delivered a man whom the devil long sought to strangle. Denistoon was turning to the sacristan with a smile and a jocular remark of some sort on his lips, but he was confounded to see the old man on his knees, gazing at the picture with the eye of a suppliant in agony, his hands tightly clasped and a rain of tears on his cheeks. Deniston naturally pretended to have noticed nothing, but the question would not go away from him. Why should a daub of this kind affect anyone so strongly? He seemed to himself to be getting some sort of clue to the reason of the strange look that had been puzzling him all the day. The man must be a monomaniac, but what was his monomania? It was nearly five o'clock. The short day was drawing in, and the church began to fill with shadows, while the curious noises the muffled footfalls and distant talking voices that had been perceptible all day seemed, no doubt because of the fading light and the consequently quickened sense of hearing, to become more frequent and insistent. The sacristan began, for the first time, to show signs of hurry and impatience. He heaved a sigh of relief when camera and notebook were finally packed up and stowed away, and hurriedly beckoned Deniston to the western door of the church under the tower. It was time to ring the Angelus, a few pulls at the reluctant rope, and the great bell Bertrand, high in the tower, began to speak, and swung her voice up among the pines and down to the valleys loud with mountain streams, calling the dwellers on those lonely hills to remember, and repeat the salutation of the angel to her whom he called blessed among women. With that, a profound quiet seemed to fall for the first time that day upon the little town, and Dennis Toon and the sacristan went out of the church. On the doorstep they fell into conversation, Monsieur seemed to interest himself in the old choir books in the sacristy. Undoubtedly, I was going to ask you if there were a library in the town. No, monsieur. Perhaps there used to be one belonging to the chapter, but it is now such a small place. Here came a strange pause of irresolution, as it seemed. Then, with a sort of plunge, he went on. But if monsieur is amateur de vieux livre, I have at home something that might interest him. It is not a hundred yards. At once all Denistoon's cherished dreams of finding priceless manuscripts in untrodden corners of France flashed up, to die down again the next moment. It was probably a stupid missile of Plantin's printing about 1580. Where was the likelihood that a place so near Toulouse would not have been ransacked long ago by collectors? However, it would be foolish not to go. He would reproach himself forever after if he refused. So they set off. On the way, the curious irresolution and sudden determination of the sacristan recurred to Denistoon, and he wondered in a shamefaced way whether he was being decoyed into some purlieu to be made away with as a supposed rich Englishman. He contrived, therefore, to begin talking with his guide, and to drag in, in a rather clumsy fashion, the fact that he expected two friends to join him early next morning. To his surprise, the announcement seemed to relieve the sacristan at once of some of the anxiety that oppressed him. "'That is well,' he said quite brightly. "'That is very well. "'Monsieur will travel in company with his friends. "'They will be always near him. "'It is a good thing to travel thus in company.' "'Sometimes.' "'The last word appeared to be added as an afterthought, "'and to bring with it a relapse into gloom for the poor little man. "'They were soon at the house, "'which was one rather larger than its neighbours, "'stone-built, with a shield carved over the door. "'The shield of Alberic de Molion, "'a collateral descendant, Denistoon tells me, of Bishop John de Molion. This Alberic was a canon of Comminges from 1680 to 1701. The upper windows of the mansion were boarded up, and the whole place bore, as does the rest of Comminges, the aspect of decaying age.
arrived on his doorstep, the sacristan paused a moment. Perhaps, he said, perhaps after all the monsieur has not the time. Not at all, lots of time, nothing to do till tomorrow. Let us see what it is you have got. The door was opened at this point, and a face looked out, a face far younger than the sacristan's, but bearing something of the same distressing look, only here it seemed to be the mark, not so much of fear for personal safety, as of acute anxiety on behalf of another. Plainly the owner of the face was the sacristan's daughter, and, but for the expression I have described, she was a handsome girl enough. She brightened up considerably on seeing her father accompanied by an able-bodied stranger. A few remarks passed between father and daughter, of which Deniston only caught these words said by the sacristan, "'He was laughing in the church.' words which were answered only by a look of terror from the girl. But in another minute they were in the sitting-room of the house, a small high chamber with a stone floor, full of moving shadows cast by a wood-fire that flickered on a great hearth. Something of the character of an oratory was imparted to it by a tall crucifix, which reached almost to the ceiling on one side. The figure was painted of the natural colours, the cross was black. Under this stood a chest of some age and solidity, and when a lamp had been brought and chairs set, the sacristan went to this chest and produced therefrom, with growing excitement and nervousness as Deniston thought, a large book, wrapped in a white cloth, on which cloth a cross was rudely embroidered in red thread. Even before the wrapping had been removed, Deniston began to be interested by the size and shape of the volume. Too large for a missal, he thought, and not the shape of an antiphona. Perhaps it may be something good after all. The next moment the book was open, and Deniston felt that he had at last lit upon something better than good. Before him lay a large folio, bound, perhaps late in the seventeenth century, with the arms of Canon Alberic de Molion stamped in gold on the sides. There may have been a hundred and fifty leaves of paper in the book, and on almost every one of them was fastened a leaf from an illuminated manuscript. Such a collection Deniston had hardly dreamed of in his wildest moments. Here were ten leaves from a copy of Genesis, illustrated with pictures, which could not be later than A.D. 700. Further on was a complete set of pictures from a Psalter, of English execution, of the very finest kind that the 13th century could produce. And, perhaps best of all, there were twenty leaves of unsealed writing in Latin, which, as a few words seen here and there told him at once, must belong to some very early unknown patristic treaties. Could it possibly be a fragment of the copy of Papias on the words of our Lord, which was known to have existed as late as the 12th century at Nimes? We now know that these leaves did contain a considerable fragment of that work, if not of that actual copy of it. In any case, his mind was made up. That book must return to Cambridge with him, even if he had to draw the whole of his balance from the bank and stay at St. Bertrand till the money came. He glanced up at the sacristan to see if his face yielded any hint that the book was for sale. The sacristan was pale, and his lips were working. "'If monsieur will turn on to the end,' he said. So monsieur turned on, meeting new treasures at every rise of a leaf, and at the end of the book he came upon two sheets of paper, of much more recent date than anything he had seen yet, which puzzled him considerably. They must be contemporary, he decided, with the unprincipled canon Alberic, who had doubtless plundered the chapter library of St. Bertrand to form this priceless scrapbook. On the first of the paper sheets was a plan, carefully drawn and instantly recognisable by a person who knew the ground, of the South Isle and cloisters of St. Bertrand's. 
There were curious signs looking like planetary symbols, and a few Hebrew words in the corners, and in the northwest angle of the cloister was a cross drawn in gold paint. Below the plan were some lines of writing in Latin, which ran thus, Responsa 12 me, des 1694, interrogatum est, inveniamne, responsum est, invenies, fiamne dives, fies, vivamne invidendus, vives, moriane in lecto mia, ita. Answers of the 12th of December, 1694. It was asked, shall I find it? Answer, thou shalt. Shall I become rich? Thou wilt. Shall I live an object of envy? Thou wilt. Shall I die in my bed? Thou wilt. A good specimen of the treasure hunter's record quite reminds one of Mr. Minor Canon Quatremain in Old St. Paul's, was Dennis Toon's comment, and he turned the leaf. What he then saw impressed him, as he has often told me, more than he could have conceived any drawing or picture capable of impressing him. And, though the drawing he saw is no longer in existence, there is a photograph of it, which I possess, which fully bears out that statement. The picture in question was a sepia drawing at the end of the 17th century, representing, one would say at first, a biblical scene. For the architecture, the picture represented an interior, and the figures had that semi-classical flavour about them, which the artists of 200 years ago thought appropriate to illustrations of the Bible. On the right was a king on his throne, the throne elevated on twelve steps, a canopy overhead, soldiers on either side, evidently King Solomon. He was bending forward with outstretched scepter, in attitude of command. His face expressed horror and disgust, yet there was in it also the mark of imperious command and confident power. The left half of the picture was the strangest, however, the interest plainly centred there. On the pavement before the throne were grouped four soldiers, surrounding a crouching figure which must be described in a moment. A fifth soldier lay dead on the pavement, his neck distorted and his eyeballs starting from his head. The four surrounding guards were looking at the king. In their faces the sentiment of horror was intensified, they seemed, in fact, only restrained from flight by their implicit trust in their master. All this terror was plainly excited by the being that crouched in their midst. I entirely despair of conveying by any words the impression which this figure makes upon anyone who looks at it. I recollect once showing the photograph of the drawing to a lecturer on morphology, a person of, I was going to say, abnormally sane and unimaginative habits of mind, he absolutely refused to be alone for the rest of that evening, and he told me afterwards that for many nights he had not dared to put out his light before going to sleep. However, the main traits of the figure I can at least indicate. At first you saw only a mass of coarse, matted black hair. Presently it was seen that this covered a body, a fearful thinness, almost a skeleton, but with the muscles standing out like wires. The hands were of a dusky pallor, covered, like the body, with long, coarse hairs and hideously taloned. The eyes, touched in with a burning yellow, had intensely black pupils and were fixed upon the throned king with a look of beast-like hate. Imagine one of the awful bird-catching spiders of South America, translated into human form and endowed with intelligence just less than human, 
and you will have some faint conception of the terror inspired by the appalling effigy. One remark is universally made by those to whom I have showed the picture. It was drawn from the life. As soon as the first shock of his irresistible fright had subsided, Denistoon stole a look at his hosts. The sacristan's hands were pressed upon his eyes. His daughter, looking up at the cross on the wall, was telling her beads feverishly. At last the question was asked, Is this book for sale? There was the same hesitation, the same plunge of determination that he had noticed before, and then came the welcome answer, If monsieur pleases. How much do you ask for it? I will take 250 francs. This was confounding. Even a collector's conscience is sometimes stirred, and Dennis Toon's conscience was tenderer than a collector's. My good man, he said again and again, your book is worth far more than 250 francs. I assure you, far more. But the answer did not vary. I will take 250 francs, not more. There was really no possibility of refusing such a chance. The money was paid, the receipt signed, a glass of wine drunk over the transaction, and then the sacristan seemed to become a new man. He stood upright. He ceased to throw those suspicious glances behind him. He actually laughed, or tried to laugh. Denistoon rose to go. "'I shall have the honour of accompanying Monsieur to his hotel,' said the sacristan. "'Oh, no, thanks, it isn't a hundred yards. I know the way perfectly, and there is a moon.' The offer was pressed three or four times, and refused as often. Then Monsieur will summon me, if, if he finds occasion. He will keep the middle of the road. The sides are so rough. Certainly, certainly, said Denistoon, who was impatient to examine his prize by himself, and he stepped out into the passage with his book under his arm. Here he was met by the daughter. She, it appeared, was anxious to do a little business of her own account, perhaps like Gehazi, to take somewhat from the foreigner whom her father had spared. A silver crucifix and chain for the neck. Monsieur would perhaps be good enough to accept it. Well, really, Denistoon hadn't much use for these things. What did Mademoiselle want for it? Nothing. Nothing in the world. Monsieur is more than welcome to it. The tone in which this, and much more, was said was unmistakably genuine, so that Denistoon was reduced to profuse thanks, and submitted to have the chain put round his neck. It really seemed as if he had rendered the father and daughter some service which they hardly knew how to repay. As he set off with his book, they stood at the door looking after him, and they were still looking when he waved them a last good night from the steps of the Chapeau Rouge. Dinner was over, and Denistoon was in his bedroom, shut up alone with his acquisition. The landlady had manifested a particular interest in him since he had told her that he had paid a visit to the sacristan and bought an old book from him. He thought, too, that he had heard a hurried dialogue between her and the said sacristan in the passage outside the salle à manger, some words to the effect that Pierre and Bertrand would be sleeping in the house, had closed the conversation. All this time, a growing feeling of discomfort had been creeping over him. Nervous reaction, perhaps, after the delight of his discovery. Whatever it was, it resulted in a conviction that there was someone behind him and that he was far more comfortable with his back to the wall. All this, of course, weighed light in the balance as against the obvious value of the collection he had acquired. And now, as I said, he was alone in his bedroom, taking stock of Canon Albrecht's treasures, in which every moment revealed something more charming. Bless Canon Albrecht, said Deniston, who had an inveterate habit of talking to himself. 
I wonder where he is now. Dear me, I wish that landlady would learn to laugh in a more cheering manner. It makes one feel as if there was someone dead in the house. Half a pipe more, did you say? I think perhaps you are right. I wonder what that crucifix is that the young woman insisted on giving me. Last century, I suppose. Yes, probably. It is rather a nuisance of a thing to have round one's neck. Just too heavy. Most likely her father has been wearing it for years. I think I might give it a clean-up before I put it away. He had taken the crucifix off and laid it on the table, when his attention was caught by an object lying on the red cloth just by his left elbow. Two or three ideas of what it might be flitted through his brain, with their own incalculable quickness. A pen wiper? No, no such thing in the house. A rat? No, too black. A large spider? I trust to goodness not, no. Good God! A hand! Like the hand in that picture! In another infinitesimal flash, he had taken it in. Pale, dusky skin, covering nothing but bones and tendons of appalling strength. Coarse black hairs, longer than ever grew on a human hand. Nails, rising from the ends of the fingers and curving sharply, down and forward, grey, horny and wrinkled. He flew out of his chair with deadly, inconceivable terror clutching at his heart. The shape, whose left hand rested on the table, was rising to a standing posture behind his seat, its right hand crooked above his scalp. There was black and tattered drapery about it. The coarse hair covered it, as in the drawing. The lower jaw was thin, what can I call it, shallow, like a beast's. Teeth showed behind the black lips. There was no nose. The eyes of a fiery yellow against which the pupils showed black and intense, and the exulting hate and thirst to destroy life which shone there were the most horrifying features in the whole vision. There was intelligence of a kind in them, intelligence beyond that of a beast, below that of a man. The feelings which this horror stirred in Dennis Toon were the intensest physical fear and the most profound mental loathing. What did he do? What could he do? He has never been quite certain what words he said, but he knows that he spoke, that he grasped blindly at the silver crucifix, that he was conscious of a movement towards him on the part of the demon, and that he screamed with the voice of an animal in hideous pain. Pierre and Bertrand, the two sturdy little serving men who rushed in, saw nothing, but felt themselves thrust aside by something that passed out between them and found Denistone in a swoon. They sat up with him that night, and his two friends were at St. Bertrand by nine o'clock the next morning. He himself, though still shaken and nervous, was almost himself by that time, and his story found credence with them, though not until they had seen the drawing and talked with the sacristan. Almost at dawn the little man had come to the inn on some pretense, and had listened with the deepest interest to the story retailed by the landlady. He showed no surprise. "'It is he! It is he! I have seen him myself!' was his only comment. And to all questionings but one reply was vouchsafed. "'Deux fois je l'ai vu, mille fois je l'ai senti.' He would tell them nothing of the provenance of the book, nor any details of his experiences. "'I shall soon sleep, and my rest will be sweet. Why should you trouble me?' he said. He died that summer. His daughter married and settled at San Papoul. She never understood the circumstances of her father's obsession. 
We shall never know what he or Canon Alberic de Molion suffered. At the back of that fateful drawing were some lines of writing which may be supposed to throw light on the situation. Contradictio Salomonis cum demonio nocturno, Albericus de Molioni delineavit, Fideus in auditorium pies qui habitat, Sancte Bertrand demoniorum effugato, intercede proma miserimo, primum uidi nocte twelve mi, des 1694, videbo mox ultimum, pecavi et passus sum plura ad hoc pasurus. December 29th, 1701. I.e., the dispute of Solomon with a demon of the night drawn by Alberic de Molion. Versicle, O Lord, make haste to help me, Psalm, whoso dwelleth, XCI. St. Bertrand, who puttest devils to flight, pray for me, most unhappy. I saw it first on the night of December the 12th, 1694. Soon I shall see it for the last time. I have sinned and suffered and have more to suffer yet. December the 29th, 1701. The Galia Christiana gives the date of the canon's death as December 31st, 1701, in bed of a sudden seizure. Details of this kind are not common in the great work of the Samathani. I have never quite understood what was Dennis Toon's view of the events I have narrated. He quoted to me once a text from Ecclesiasticus. Some spirits there be that are created for vengeance and in their fury lay on sore strokes. On another occasion, he said, Isaiah was a very sensible man. Doesn't he say something about night monsters living in the ruins of Babylon? These things are rather beyond us at present. Another confidence of his impressed me rather, and I sympathised with it. We had been last year to command to see Canon Alberic's tomb. It is a great marble erection with an effigy of the canon in a large wig and soutane, and an elaborate eulogy of his learning below. I saw Dennis Toon talking for some time with the vicar of St. Bertrand's, and as we drove away, he said to me, I hope it isn't wrong. You know, I am a Presbyterian, but I I believe there will be saying of mass and singing of dirges for Alberic de Molion's rest. Then he added with a touch of northern British in his tone, I had no notion they came so dear. The book is in the Wentworth collection at Cambridge. The drawing was photographed and then burnt by Dennis Toon on the day when he left Comange on the occasion of his first visit. End of Canon Alberic's scrapbook. Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the truth. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. Bono was a French dwarf. He was only 18 inches tall at the age of 11. However, he ate 40 large cucumbers, 30 figs, and a whole watermelon for dessert each day. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the guard who was faithful even after death. Stephanos was a guard at the monastery of St. Catherine on biblical Mount Sinai. On his deathbed in the year 580, he pleaded to be permitted to continue his services. This unusual request was honored, and so after his death, Stephanos was placed outside the house of the dead. There, his fully clothed skeleton still guards the entrance today, a macabre reminder of the loyalty of a man many years after his death. Believe it or not.
We're back. That was Kanan Alberic's Scrapbook by M.R. James. That brings us to this week's episode of the Magnus Archives. This episode also deals with a strange book that contains something strange, weird, and horrible. Our episode for this week is episode 4, Page Turner. I'll be back after to introduce our old-time radio episode for this week. Rusty Quill presents the Magnus Archives. Episode 4 Page Turner. Statement of Dominic Swain, regarding a book briefly in his possession in the winter of 2012. Original statement given June 28, 2013. Audio recording by Jonathan Sims, head archivist of the Magnus Institute, London. Statement begins. I work as a theatre technician in various venues around the West End. I mainly deal with lights, but a lot of the smaller venues can't afford large crews for their productions, so you end up doing a little bit of everything. I guess that's not directly relevant to my experience, but I just want you to know that I'm not some crazy person wandering in off the street. I work, I do practical things with my hands, and I am not prone to crazed flights of fancy. That day I was going to see a matinee performance of the Trojan Women at the Gate Theatre up in Notting Hill. A friend of mine, Catherine Mendes, was in it and had been trying to get me to come to see it for a while. We'd worked together on a production of The Seagull a couple of years before, and had had a bit of a thing going back then. At this point I had just become single, so was keen to meet up and see if any of the old spark remained. I ended up going along on the afternoon of Saturday the 10th of November. I remember the date exactly. There had been a lot of back and forth about it, since we were both involved in separate shows at the time, making evenings difficult. So, on Saturday afternoon, I found myself in Notting Hill Gate, killing an hour or two before the show was due to start. Now, Notting Hill is not somewhere I go often, as it tends towards the pricey, even for London. And I'm not sure how much you know about theatre techs, but we're not generally an overpaid profession. Still, I had some vague memories of there being an Oxfam charity shop somewhere nearby, as I'd previously bought quite a nice old military tunic there, which remains one of my favourite jackets. I found it without any problems and spent ten minutes or so looking over the clothes and knick-knacks, but was a bit disappointed. It was smaller than I remembered, and just seemed to contain the same tedious curios as every other charity shop. I still had some time to kill, though, so I decided to have a look through their books, something I rarely bother doing, usually. 
I found the book on the science fiction and fantasy shelf. At first I assumed it was some sort of faux leather special edition, and I was sure whoever put it out for sale must have done the same, because the price on it was only £4. There was something about it that made me take another look, though, and picking it up, I felt the binding and realised it might well have been bound in real leather, probably calf given how soft it was. I'm not an expert on books by any means, but it seemed old, and I thought it might have been hand-bound as the pages were slightly uneven. There was no dust wrapper on it, and the front had no title, but embossed on the spine in faded gold letters were the words Ex Altiora. I did some Latin in school when I was a child, but I haven't had much cause to use it since, so you'll have to forgive me if my translations don't make much sense, but I believe it meant from higher, or out of the heights. I was astounded, to say the least. The book was clearly worth far more than it was being sold for. If the shop clerk who put it out had been paying any attention, it would have been in the glass case where they kept those things people donated that were actually valuable. I had a flick through, but it seemed to be entirely written in Latin, so I didn't have much luck discerning what it was about. The only English seemed to be a book plate at the front that read, From the Library of Jorgen Leitner, although no author was listed. There were also several black and white illustrations, woodcuts I think, each showing a mountain or a cliff, or in one picture what appeared to be an empty night sky. I felt an odd sensation when I looked at that image, as though, simple as it was, I was about to fall into it. My stomach gave an odd jolt, almost causing me to drop the book in the middle of Oxfam. I made up my mind to buy it. Even if I never figured out how to read the thing, it was clearly worth a lot more than they were selling it for. I felt like a bit of an ass for not letting them know how valuable it was, almost like I was stealing money from the charity. But in the end, I realised that it wasn't my job to set the prices in this shop, and besides, this book absolutely fascinated me. The woman working the till didn't even raise an eyebrow when I brought it over and paid my four pounds. I headed out, hoping to find a cafe where I could sit and have another look through. But it was then that I noticed the time. I'd somehow managed to spend an hour in that shop. Now I was very nearly late for Catherine's play. I made it in time, luckily, though I had to run a bit. The show was fine. I've never been a particular fan of Greek plays, and this interpretation was not the one to win me round to them. Catherine was excellent, of course, but the rest of the show was quite frankly a bit pedestrian. Still, I'm not a theatre critic, and I wasn't exactly paying it my full attention, as I was convinced there was a problem with the stage lights. Throughout the show, I kept getting the faintest smell of ozone, and was worried. The only other time I'd smelled that in the theatre was when one of my stagehands had accidentally ordered the wrong sort of light, and we'd ended up installing a projector with a xenon-mercury lamp the sort used to sterilise medical equipment with UV. I spotted the issue before anything happened, but I still remember that intense ozone smell. Still, no one else seemed to notice it, and I couldn't see anything in their light setup that would have caused the odour, so I tried my best to ignore it. After the performance was finished, Catherine and I grabbed a quick dinner before heading to our respective evening shows. I was disappointed to discover that Whatever attraction there had been between us seemed to have vanished completely, and while we spent a pleasant enough couple of hours together, it was obvious that neither of us wanted to take it any further. I did show her the book, though. She knew even less Latin than I did, but was impressed. She said it looked valuable and that I should take it somewhere to be appraised, although she didn't look through it in any detail, as the pictures triggered her vertigo for some reason. 
Nothing of note occurred after I left. I did my show, a production of Much Ado About Nothing, down at the Courtyard Theatre, with no problems. I returned home late, having gone for a drink with the stage manager and a couple of the actors, and felt far too awake to just go to bed. So I poured myself a small gin and tonic and decided to look through this book in more detail. Oddly enough, I somehow hadn't learned any more Latin since I bought it twelve hours before, so reading it was still out of the question. But I went through and had a closer look at those woodcuts. There were about a dozen that I found, mostly mountains and cliffs, but one appeared to be a tower, looming over the surrounding countryside at an odd angle, with tiny birds just visible circling the summit. And then there was that picture of an empty sky. I've never had any fear of heights, but staring at that picture, I felt... I don't know, really. I just couldn't look at it for too long. It seemed to open forever, nothing to do but fall into it. It was even stranger as there wasn't much to the picture itself except for black ink and a few stylized stars. But something in the proportions just had that effect on me. I decided that maybe Catherine had been right and it might be valuable as an antique, so I did some research to try and find out more about it. Latin fell out of favour as a language for academic texts in the 18th century, and I really doubted the thing was that old. Since then, it was only really used for religious texts, but the book certainly didn't look like it was full of prayers. Searching ex altiora online didn't do much good. The phrase was used in a few old prayers. There was a company called Altiora and something in Italian about football, but nothing that looked even remotely like it related to my book. Searching for Jürgen Leitner wasn't much better. It brought up an entry for an Austrian musician and a few Facebook pages, although they all seemed to have umlauts in their names, unlike the one in the book, and none of them looked like the sorts to have a library full of strange Latin texts. The only thing I found that looked even remotely relevant was a listing on eBay from 2007. The auction was titled Key of Solomon, 1863, owned by MacGregor Mathers and Jürgen Leitner and had been won for just over £1,200 by a deactivated user, G.R. Bookworm, 1818. There was no picture or description, just the title and the winning bid. I decided to call it a night and go to bed. I think I had a nightmare, but I don't remember the details. I slept in very late the next day, and by the time I awoke there wasn't much daylight left, but I spent the hours until my show contacting book dealers that I'd looked up online. All of them put the book's age between 100 and 150 years and said it looked like it had been custom-bound. Most offered to buy it off me for a few hundred pounds, but at this point I was more interested in information about it. Unfortunately, none of them had heard of it before or seemed at all familiar with its contents. The last seller I went to did recognise the name Jürgen Leitner, though. She told me Leitner had been a big name in the literary scene during the 1990s, some rich Scandinavian recluse paying absurd amounts of money for whatever books took his fancy. It was said he'd often have books custom-bound after providing a manuscript, or even commission authors to produce works to his brief, although she didn't actually know any writers who had worked with Leitner. He dropped from public view somewhere around 95, but she recalled he used to have extensive dealings with pinhole books down in Morden, and gave me the details for Mary Key, who owned it. I went and I did my show after that, the last night of the run, in point of fact, but though I didn't miss a single lighting cue, all through it, I just couldn't take my mind off the book. 
I felt as though there was something I was missing just beyond my grasp. And all throughout I could detect that same faint smell of ozone. Or was it ozone? There was something else there. Something I knew but could not remember. Every time I felt I was close, I was overcome with a dizziness and nausea that threatened to topple me over. I skipped the cast party afterwards, instead going for a long walk to clear my head in the cold November air. I don't know how long I walked for. It must have been hours, but it felt right, like it was all I could do. Walking felt as natural as falling. It was only when a man shouted at me for almost walking into him that I stopped and took stock of my surroundings. I had no idea where I was. I took out my phone to find the nearest station and saw that I was only a street away from Morden. I felt dizzy all of a sudden, and when I looked at the building I was stood in front of, I was not in the least bit surprised to see a brass plaque reading, Pinhole Books, by appointment only, next to an unmarked door of dark stained wood. I rang the doorbell and waited. The woman who opened the door wasn't at all what I was expecting. She was very old and painfully thin, but her head was completely clean-shaven and every square inch of skin I could see was tattooed over with closely written words in a script I didn't recognise. She stood at the bottom of a flight of stairs and from the top I could hear the sound of death metal blaring out of some powerful speakers. I wondered for a moment if she got complaints from the neighbours playing it so loudly at two o'clock in the morning and realised with a start that it was actually two o'clock in the morning. I apologised for disturbing her so late and asked if she was Mary Key. She just snorted and asked in a decidedly unfriendly manner if I had an appointment. I reached into my bag and pulled out Ex Altiora, opening it to show Leitner's name on the bookplate. At this her eyes seemed to light up and she turned around to walk up the stairs. She didn't shut the door behind her, so I took this as an invitation and followed her up. We entered a cramped set of rooms, with books piled high in every conceivable corner, almost to a point where I had to be careful following her through the labyrinth so as not to take a wrong turn. She was talking, I realised, and didn't seem to care if I heard her over the music or not. She said it had been a long time since she'd found a lightener, although... Her Gerard kept an eye out. She gave no elaboration as to who her Gerard might have been. This strange old woman didn't seem interested in actually reading or looking at my book in depth, but asked instead if I wanted to see hers. I just nodded. I was out of my depth here, but I had no idea what in. I just knew that I hadn't smelled ozone since I arrived. I followed Mary Key into a dingy study, it was small to begin with, but every wall was completely covered with packed bookshelves, crowding even further into the space. Immediately my host began to scan them intently, muttering to herself about where he would have put it. I stood there awkwardly, not wanting to stare at the old woman, but also hesitant to do anything else. Aside from the bookshelves, there was little in the room other than a worn desk with a very old-looking chair behind it. The desk was covered with papers, as well as fishing wire and a safety razor. I think it says something about my state of mind at this point, that I didn't even give those items a second thought at the time. Instead, my attention was fixed on a picture, attached to the one small area of wall not covered by bookshelves. 
It was a painting of an eye, very detailed, and at first I would have said almost photorealistic. But the more I looked at it, the more I saw the patterns and symmetries that formed into a single image, until I was so focused on them that I started to have difficulty seeing the eye itself. Written below it were three lines in fine green calligraphy. Grant us the sight that we may not know. Grant us the scent that we may not catch. Grant us the sound that we may not call. At this point Mary Key returned with two cups of tea. I hadn't even noticed her leave, nor had I requested the cup of black tea she pressed into my hand. She asked if I liked the painting, and told me that her Gerard had done it, said he was a very talented artist. I mumbled something approving, I don't remember exactly what, and looked at the cup of tea in my hand. She hadn't offered me any milk, and was now busily searching the shelves again, her own cup forgotten on the desk. I tried to drink the stuff out of politeness, but it tasted foul, like dust and smoke. I think it might have once been Lapsang Souchong, but... If so, it must have been years old. Finally, Mary seemed to find the book she was looking for and took it from the shelf. She handed me a book that, at first glance, appeared to be almost identical to my copy of Exaltiora, except that the leather was in slightly better condition. There was no title on this one, but opening it, I could see that it was written in letters I didn't recognise. There were no illustrations in this book the only English words I could find were on the book plate from the library of Jorgen Leitner, just like mine. Mary told me that the writing was in Sanskrit, but when I asked her if she could read it, she just started laughing. She took the book back and walked over to the desk where the room's single unshaded light bulb cast stark shadows across the floor. She very deliberately held the book in those shadows for a few seconds and then handed it back to me. I noticed for the first time that the heavy metal music was no longer playing and the room was utterly silent. I opened the book and for a few seconds was confused to see that nothing seemed to have changed. The writing was still unintelligible to me and it felt no different. I lifted it to have a closer look and as I did I heard something clatter lightly onto the floor. I looked down to see bones. Small animal bones, from what I could tell. But each one was slightly bent and warped into shapes that bones should not form. As I stared at them, Mary Key took the book back from me and passed it through the shadows once again. More bones fell. She did this several times until there was a small pile formed at my feet. I didn't know what to say. By this point my head was pounding and the feel of this cramped, dark place with its old tea and ancient books was starting to overwhelm me. All I could think to ask was whether my book did that as well. Mary Key laughed and told me to look for myself. I began to look through those pages. I hadn't passed it through any shadows, but I knew something had changed. The woodcuts were starker somehow. In the background of each there were new lines, thick and dark, stretching down from the sky. And then I came to the picture of that empty night. But now it had a stark, branching pattern carving through it. A pattern I recognised. My stomach dropped as though the floor was gone and I was falling. 
Struggling to stay standing, I muttered some excuse and went to leave. The ozone smell was back now, stronger than ever, and I had to get out. I fell down the stairs as I fled, badly bruising my hip and twisting my ankle painfully, but I didn't care. I limped from that place as quickly as I could, and hailed a taxi to take me home, fingers still locked in a death grip on my book. The branching pattern I'd seen in that picture is known as the Lichtenberg figure. It shows the diverging paths of electricity on an insulating material such as glass or resin. I knew it from the pattern of scars on the back of my childhood friend, who had been struck by lightning because of me. His name was Michael Crewe, and we'd been eight years old at the time, playing in a field near my grandmother's house. When the storm hit, Michael had said that we should go inside, but I wanted to keep playing in the rain. I said that to him, and he just sighed and told me all right. It was as he said these words that he was struck. The sound when it happened was so loud that it drowned out his screams completely. But it was the smell that really stayed with me. That powerful ozone smell cut through with the scent of cooking meat. Michael survived in the end, but the scar, that branching Lichtenberg scar, stayed with him for the rest of his life. When I got home, it took all of my concentration to get up the stairs, and when I finally made it onto my sofa, I couldn't shake that feeling as though I was falling, and the smell was so strong I could hardly breathe. I didn't look at the book, I just lay there. I felt as though I was waiting for something, but I had no idea what. By the time the knock on the door finally came, I was almost feeling composed enough to answer. Almost. It still took me almost five minutes to work up the nerve to open it. The knock did not come again, but I was positive that whatever was on the other side had not gone away. I reached over, grasped the handle and pulled the door open. Stood just over the threshold was a man in a long, dark leather coat. His hair was dyed an artificial black, and he had the unshaven look of someone who hadn't slept in a couple of days. I asked him if he was Gerard Key. He said that he was, and told me he'd like to see my book. I nodded silently, and he followed me inside, closing the door behind him. I took out the book and placed it on the table. Gerard studied it for some time, but did not touch it. Finally, he nodded and offered to buy it from me for £5,000. I almost laughed when he said that. I would have sold it for a fraction of the amount. I might even have given it away if it wasn't for the feeling that that wouldn't count somehow. It's hard to explain. I didn't care what he planned to do with it. I just wanted to get rid of it. And so I agreed. Gerard didn't seem exactly happy of the news. He just nodded gravely and headed towards the door, saying he'd need to get the money in return. I didn't try to stop him. He left, closing the door behind him, and I was alone once again. The whole encounter lasted barely more than a minute. I sat there, waiting in silence for him to return. It was awful, and I needed to find some way to distract myself from the creeping smell, so I decided to get out my computer and see what I could find out about Gerard and Mary Key. Typing in their names, I don't know what sort of thing it was that I expected to find. 
but it certainly wasn't a news article from 2008 about Mary Key's murder. Police had broken in late September after neighbours complained about the smell and found her lying dead in the study. The cause of death was apparently determined to be an overdose of painkillers, but it was judged a murder due to extensive post-mortem mutilation of the body. Large pieces of her skin had been peeled away and hung up to dry on fishing wire all around the room. The article had a picture of Mary Key, and there was no question that it was the same old woman that I had met in Morden, although in the photograph she seemed to have a full head of hair and lacked any visible tattoos. I frantically started searching for any other information I could find. Other news stories covered Jared's trial for his mother's murder. Apparently he had been acquitted after a significant piece of evidence was deemed inadmissible, although none of the reports seemed to know what exactly that evidence was. It was at this moment the knocking came again. Jared had returned. I opened the door. I thought briefly about not letting him in, but I knew he'd wait there as long as he needed to, and I couldn't think for the reek of ozone that penetrated every one of my senses. I could not hide the terror on my face as he entered, but if he noticed the change in my demeanor, then he didn't react to it. He simply handed me an envelope filled with cash. I didn't even bother to count it before handing him the book. He looked at the title, then flicked through it very quickly, before laughing just once, and nodding, apparently to himself, as though he'd just come to some sort of decision. I had expected Jared to leave immediately, but instead he walked over to my metal waste paper basket and placed the book inside. He reached into his jacket pocket and pulled out a bottle of lighter fluid and a box of matches. Within a few seconds the book was ablaze and the smell vanished almost immediately. Even as my head began to clear, I felt like I had to ask him why. But he just shook his head. My mother doesn't always know what's best for our family. That was all he said before picking up the waste paper bin, now full of gently smouldering ashes. I warned him it would be too hot to hold, but he shrugged and said he'd had worse. Then Jared Key left, and I never saw him or the book again. Statement ends. If I never hear the name Jürgen Leitner again, it will be too soon. I suppose it was too much to hope that we'd finally dealt with all the remainder of his library after the incident in 1994, but it would have been useful if Gertrude had at least thought to add this statement to the current project file. Who knows how many other statements are in here that might deal with his books or other currently active institute projects. If my luck thus far is anything to go by, then I'd say it is unlikely this was an isolated example. The more I discover about this archive, the more it seemed Gertrude simply took the written statements and threw them into these files without even reading them. Given that she was head archivist for over fifty years, then that is... This might be a bigger job than I originally thought. Regardless, most of the verifiable details in Mr. Swain's account seem to match up with our own researches. Martin couldn't find any records of Ex Altiora as a title in existent catalogues of esoteric or similar literature, so I assigned Sasha to double-check. Still nothing. 
Is it possible Mr. Swain got the title wrong? It seems unlikely, given the simplicity of it and the occurrences he describes certainly sound like they could have been due to the proximity of a true Leitner tome. Still, all the other books from his library have been custom editions of known texts on demonology or the arcane. If there are Leitners out there that we haven't even heard of, I fear that may be cause for some small alarm. Useful details for follow-up are few and far between, however. Donation records at the Oxfam charity shop in Notting Hill Gate only have anonymous donations listed for books in October-November 2012, and obviously none of the staff recall the book. We've also been unable to locate Jared Key at all. Aside from this encounter, he seems to have almost entirely disappeared following the end of his trial. The description Mr. Swain gives does appear to match file photos of Jared and Mary Key, and from his description it sounds like he did find his way to what used to be pinhole books in Morden, although it has been closed since 2008 for obvious reasons, and no new tenants moved in till 2014. There was one interesting thing Tim found out, though, in the official police report on Mary Key's death. Apparently the drying sheets of skin had been written over in permanent marker, there was no transcription or translation of it in the report, but the language was identified to be Sanskrit. So it doesn't appear that we have any concrete leads to go on. Still, I will be bringing this up with Elias, and recommending that the search for any other missed books from the Leitner Library be made this institute's highest priority. Jürgen Leitner has done the world enough harm and we must pursue all available avenues to ensure that he does no more. Recording ends. The Magnus Archives is a podcast distributed by RustyQuill.com and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike International License. Today's episode was written and performed by Jonathan Sims, it was produced by Alexander J. Newell, Mike LeBeau, and Murray Porter, and directed by Alexander J. Newell. To comment on episodes, make donations and view links, images, videos, and show notes, visit RustyQuill.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter at TheRustyQuill, or email us at mail at RustyQuill.com. Thanks for listening. Stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. The most inhuman monarch in all history was King Deotaris I of Galaha. On his deathbed, to make sure his favorite son would succeed him, he imposed death sentences on his six others. I'll tell you about the man who was saved by a serpent. Count Zinzendorf was a Moravian missionary to America. One night he concentrated so intently on his reading that he didn't notice a rattlesnake crawling over his feet. A band of Indians had stalked the Count in his tent in the Wyoming Valley of Pennsylvania. They were preparing to a tithering over his feet. When the snake moved on without harming the Count, the Indians fled in the... had a charmed life, believe it or not. (laughs) 
And we're back once more. That was episode four of the Magnus Archives. Page Turner. This week's all-time radio show is another offering from CBS Radio Mystery Theater and is an adaptation of another story by our esteemed author this week. From the March 4th, 1974 radio broadcast of CBS Radio Mystery Theater, yours cruelly in Dread Time Stories, Back from the Grave, presents This Will Kill You. I'll be back after to close out the show. Take it away, E.G. Marshall. The CBS Radio Mystery Theater presents... chilling insight into the powers of witchcraft and an ancient curse. Witchcraft today is an in thing with the young, which may appear somewhat incongruous since witches, demons, and warlocks are older than the beginning of recorded time. And somehow, despite all of society's maledictions and efforts to stamp it out, witchcraft has survived. As we will demonstrate in our spine-tingling tale. Do you believe in demons, Miss Bell? Frankly, no. Do you believe in God? Any God? Of course. Then you must also believe in angels. And demons, according to all we know about them, they are simply fallen angels, fixed eternally in evil. And although we may not know whether we are being fanned by airs from heaven or blasts from hell, it is best to be on guard. And having said that, I should not like to be Robert Anthony, whom you will meet very soon. Our mystery drama, This Will Kill You, was written especially for the Radio Mystery Theater by Murray Burnett and stars Norman Rose, and Larry Haynes. It is sponsored in part by Anheuser-Busch Incorporated, Brewers of Budweiser, and by the Kellogg Company, makers of Kellogg's Special K cereal. I'll be back shortly with Act One. Rage, my friends, is one of the curses of mankind. Rage thickens the blood, assails the eardrums, racks the body with the mad urge to destroy. It has been said that whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad. And that applies to all of us, even if some are on speaking terms with God or the devil. Witness a man who is consumed with rage, Theodore Rakatsi. You couldn't have heard me come in here. What are you breaking things for? 
Are you thinking of redecorating? Uh, this is the wrong time to try to be amusing, Liz. Well, what should I do? Ask if you've gone crazy? Evidently, you have not read this... This filthy, ignorant, arrogant, vicious review of my book. Oh, of course I have. That... That presumptuous idiot, Robert Anthony, to write such a review. Oh, come off it, Ted. Uh, <laughs> you know, you sound like you're back to the Middle Ages. What are you going to do? Challenge him to a duel? Uh, I have other powers. Other resources. Well, you're serious. Serious? After this review, let me read just one part to you. Mr. Rakotsi, possessor of an awesome reputation as an expert on witchcraft in this unnecessarily long book titled Demons and Demonology, has gathered the wildest concoction of old wives' tales, superstitions, and demons ever brought before the public. And, what is worse, he has given credence to them. To take witchcraft as seriously as Mr. Ragazzi does is simply childish. Ted, he's just another writer-reviewer trying to be clever. Yes, at my expense. At anybody's expense. He just happened to be the target of the day. Mm-hmm. And now he is my target. For what? A nasty letter to the editor? For... for death. Oh, sure. If you thought this review was bad, wait until you see the ones you get after you kill him. Uh, I will not kill him. Oh, that's a relief. Uh, Liz, uh, pick a date. What? Uh, pick a date. Any date that comes to your mind. Uh, and the time. Uh, write them down on this slip of paper. What for? Oh, to please me. All right. What's today? The 14th. Here. Okay, will this do? The 28th. 10.53 p.m. Oh, yes, it will do beautifully. Uh, thank you, Liz. You're welcome. And now that we've finished playing games, can we go? Of course. But the game is just about to begin. I ever remarked how well you drive, Liz? Often, thank you. I think that's what attracted me to you in the first place. Your driving uh, and your legs. <laughs> I'm happy to see that you're feeling better. Yes, due to you as usual. Well, I haven't done a thing. Oh, yes, you have. Uh, you know that date you wrote down for me? Yes. Well, that is the exact date and time that Robert Anthony will die. Oh, sorry I asked. You don't believe me. Oh, I thought you'd forgotten about that silly review. Where are you going? To the party. Ted, why did you ask me to write down the date? Oh, a whim. It amused me to leave the amount of time that Anthony has left to live uh, to mere chance. Well, suppose I'd picked a date next year. Well, that would have given Anthony more time. That's all. You sound so certain. <laughs> I am. What's the matter with me? Why am I talking as if there were any possibility that you have the power to kill another human being? Why, indeed. I can almost understand why Anthony wrote about your book the way he did. And of course. Like Mr. Anthony, you also are a dabbler in the occult. Like him, you are an innocent, naive, playing like children with forces you neither understand nor respect. How about a bet? On what? On me and my powers against Robert Anthony. Don't be ridiculous. Oh, yes, you're afraid to trust your skepticism. It's very simply proven. 
If Anthony dies on the day and at the exact time we both know, then I win. If he doesn't, you are the victor. And you know once and for all that Theodore Cozzi is a fraud and a cheat. That part tempts me. Then I have your word. It is a bet. What are we betting? Your soul. Robert Anthony, you're not leaving the party already. Oh, I'm sorry, Carl. I uh, just dropped by to meet your guests, but my publishers are getting uptight about my new book. Well, everyone here is talking about the hatchet job you did on Ricazzi. Why do they think I've got a bone to pick with Ricazzi? Well, I've read a lot of reviews, but... Look, I've had a job to do, to review a book. I never even met the man. I took off because his book was so, so ponderous. Instead of writing a history of demons and demonology, which would be interesting, Rakatsi wrote as if he were putting down facts. Sorry if I touched a nerve. It's all right, forget it. I just think there's entirely too much fuss about the review. I know a little about witchcraft, and I think it can be amusing, but... Okay, but I hear Rakatsi's taking it very big. Well, I don't want to hear that Rakatsi's out to get me with the same crazy, demonic curse superstitious idiots believe in. Well, let's forget Rakatsi. What about that play we cooked up? Well, I just told you, Carl, my publishers are getting restless. I'm spending most of my time in the library. <laughs> Look, can we put it off for a week or two? Okay, fine. I've got to run. But I'll call, Carl just to let you know I'm still alive. This is Jennifer Bell and another broadcast of The Author Speaks. My guest for today is the man who has written the most controversial book about devils and deviltry, Theodore Rokotsi. I am happy to be here. Mr. Rokotsi... I must confess, your book scared the daylights out of me. <laughs> was that your intention? Oh, no, not at all. Uh, my intention was to inform, uh, to let people know that there are forces in this world that they may not have been aware of. Oh, well, then you're serious in your thesis about demons and their power. Oh, absolutely. Which naturally leads me to that review by Robert Anthony. How did you feel about it? Well, I would be less than honest if I said I was pleased. But uh, it caused me only a small annoyance. Really? Uh, you are asking the wrong question. Oh? Well, then set me straight. You should not ask if I were annoyed about it, but rather how Uziel Rabdas Bellet are angry about their powers uh, being mocked. Well, I'm... Not acquainted with those gentlemen you mentioned. Uh, which is just as well for you. You see, they are demons. Powerful demons. And if they take offense... Well, I, I should not like to be uh, Mr. Robert Anthony. You're predicting that some harm might come to Robert Anthony? Well, I predict nothing. Forgive me, but didn't you just issue a warning? A warning is not a prediction. Uh... Do you believe in demons, Miss Bell? Frankly, no. Do you believe in God? Any God? Of course. Good. Then, of course, you must believe in angels. And demons, according to all we know about them, are simply fallen angels, turned away from God, fixed eternally in evil. I would like to inform you, madam, that a belief in the existence of angels and demons is an article of faith with two of our major world religions. 
All I say is that I should not like to be in the company of Robert Anthony uh, during the next month. Good morning. I see you have my books waiting for me, those five over there. Thank you. Well, today I ought to finish my research. I'm going to miss the peace and quiet of this library. My name is Theodore Rakotsi. I called about a book you said you would have waiting. Ah, yes. Thank you. Oh, excuse me. Yes? It uh, sounds absurd, I know, but uh, I am superstitious about where I sit uh, when I work here. Also, the light. Oh, so yes, it's okay. Sit right down. Oh, yes. You, you're so kind. Oh, oh I'm so... So sorry. Oh, forgive my clumsiness. I've knocked your books down. Let me help you. Oh, it's all right. I can pick them up. Uh, I cannot think how I could be so clumsy. Uh, maybe I should wear glasses. Uh, don't worry about it. Accidents happen. Yes, of course. Oh, uh, uh, this uh, piece of paper is yours, I believe. Oh, thank you. Uh, is, is something wrong? Uh, you keep looking over your shoulder. No, no, no. It's, it's, uh, it's nothing. I... I don't feel well. It'll pass. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, sir, can I help? No. No, I uh, think I need a little fresh air. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, sir? Uh, sir, your books. Oh, forget them. Uh, I'll be back when I feel better. <laughs> Trying to get yourself killed? I, I guess it looked like it, didn't it? Well, no, it's it's nothing. Carl, believe me, I I, uh, I was in the library and suddenly I had a crazy impulse to start running. Bob, what's the trouble? Nothing, nothing. There's no trouble. It's it's just that. Uh, what do you expect to find over your shoulder? Nothing, nothing. If I didn't know that your last novel sold over a million, I'd say you'd just held up a bank and were running away. Look, forget the jokes, huh? But I'm Bob. sorry. I'm sorry. I really am, Carl. But leave me alone. Whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad. But are the gods desirous of destroying Robert Anthony or the demons? And who are the demons that are driving him? I'll be back shortly with Act Two. I am back to lead you along the dark roads of witchcraft. The demon-ridden Robert Anthony has turned to the 20th century remedy against magical spells. Psychiatry and is attempting to explain his terror to an eminent psychiatrist. How can I make you understand, Doctor, how intensely real this fear is? I'm not imagining it. It's there. I feel it. Every minute I feel it. It's, it's at my shoulder, behind my back, pa pressing in on me. Of course. Have you ever heard of anything like this before? Nothing exactly similar, but fear is quite common. 
Most people are afraid of something. But don't they know what they're afraid of? They sometimes think they do. And what do you tell them? I think it would be best if you talk about yourself. You say you first felt this way about a week ago. Yes, yes, I was. I was working in the library, and I suddenly felt I just had to get out and run. Had anything happened that day to upset you? Anything out of the ordinary? No, no, nothing, nothing, Doctor. Have you felt this fear before? I mean, early in your life. Well, just the usual, Doctor, you know, when my friends would dare me to jump over a large hole in the ground or something like that, but... Wait. Yes? Yes, I just remember it. When I, when I went to college, there was a suspension bridge, a shortcut from the campus to my dormitory. Everyone mm -hmm. took it. Mm -hmm. Well, one night I was with some friends, and we came to the bridge, and it, it was out. There, there was only one single plank, and... This was a, a, a deep, deep chasm, Doctor, maybe a hundred feet. Yes. Well, I, I wanted to go back to walk around it, but the others voted against that. They, they all walked across. And I can remember how terrified I was. I, I got down on my hands and knees and crawled across the single plank with the water roaring below me. I was terrified. You're afraid of heights. Well, I'm not comfortable with them, but... Would you say that today you're somewhere near the height of your profession as a writer? Oh, come on, Doctor. This has nothing to do with any fear of heights. This, this is... Well, this is... Yes? This is witchcraft. Interesting. Why do you say that? Look, we've been through it. The review you wrote on the Rakatsi book, Demons and Demonology? Right. Are you sorry you wrote such a scathing review? No. No? Well, I... I don't know. I think you are. Well, if I, if I was wrong and possibly there are such demons and spells as Rakatsi describes in his book, that would or might account for this fear of mine, wouldn't it? You mean you think Rakatsi might have put a spell on you? Well, it's possible, isn't it? <sighs> Can't you think of another explanation? Can you? Yes. Let's examine what you've told me. On the one hand, you believe that Rakatsi has put some sort of a spell on you. Am I correct? That's all I can think of, Doctor. Why would he do that? Well, because he... Exactly. Because you have hurt him severely. So your statement that he wasn't injured by your review is false, isn't it? Well, or illogical. All right, it would seem so. Very well. You admit that to yourself. And then think that as a sensitive man... You've satisfied your own ego with a review that you think might be unfair. Where does that take us? Doctor, do you believe that I feel so guilty that I run through the streets pursued by shadows? That I can't sleep because I, I feel a presence in my room? That I feel threatened every second of the day and it's getting worse by the minute? Do you really believe that? It's a possibility. Oh, no, no. You'd rather believe in witchcraft. Why? Doctor, you're not helping me. If you'll examine your motive as to why you insist that Rakatsi has some power to cast a spell over you, then I All think... All right, I'm getting out of here. That won't help. Neither do you. I tell you, I feel that I'm going to die, and you talk about guilt? I'm getting out. Desperate men take desperate measures. And Robert Anthony was desperate. As he ran from what he thought pursued him, he held on to the last of his sanity. In his dabbling in witchcraft, he had heard, as had everyone interested in diabolism, of Professor Thurman Anderson. 
an outstanding scholar and acknowledged authority in the field. Professor Onritson. Yes? I'm Robert Anthony. Oh, come in. I've been expecting you. You have? Why? Because I read your review and I know Rakotsi. Oh, then you think he might have done something to me? I think it probable that he has tried. I won't know until you tell me what's happened. Uh, come in and sit down. Thank you. Professor, do you, uh, do you think you can help? First, tell me why you think Rakotsi has cast a spell. Because as I sit here talking to you, I'm eaten up by fear. I have a feeling that something is following me, Professor. Something, something so terrible that I can't even imagine what it is. But I'm certain, I'm certain that it's going to kill me. Uh, how long have you had this feeling? About a week. And can you remember when you first felt it? Oh, yes, very vividly. It was in the library. I, Do I... you know Rakotsi? No. No spell can be put upon you unless the creator has some contact with you. Did you meet him by chance, perhaps? Well, I don't know. No, I don't think so. I, I haven't been very social this past week. I can't even begin to think what it could be unless you give me something to go on. Did you have a chance encounter with anyone? Did a stranger bump into you, perhaps? No, no, I... I, I... Oh, wait, wait. Yes? In the library, there, there was a man, a man with a, a slight accent. Rakotsi has an accent. Well, I remember he came over and asked if he could sit next to me, and as he sat down, he knocked over my books. He, ah. he apologized, and he insisted on picking them up. Anything else? No. Yes, yes. Yes, he gave me a piece of paper. You took it? Well, of course... I, I didn't remember whether I had actually dropped it or not. Do you have it? Well, yes, because I remember looking at it when I got home and wondering what it was. It just didn't make any sense to me. Well, 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 can I see it? Well, sure. There you are. Hmm. Good Lord. What is it, Professor? What do you see? The casting of the runes. What? What does that mean? I can't believe that even a man as vindictive as Rakotsi would do this. Professor, what is it? You see this writing? Yes. It is the runic alphabet. It represents an ancient death curse. And, and those uh, figures on it? The date of your death. Oh, that's ridiculous. It was used many centuries ago. There are stories of younger brothers using it to eliminate the rightful heir to the throne. It has earned the reputation of being one of the most powerful of all the ancient spells. The drawback, of course, was the absolute necessity of having the man or woman casting the runes to pass the curse on directly and... Have it accepted. Oh, no, I won't believe that. This is the 20th century. Careful, careful. Lose this paper and you lose your only chance. Chance? You mean there's something I can do? One thing. What is it? Pass the curse to someone else. Oh, this is unbelievable. If someone else told me about this conversation, I'd say we were both fit subjects for an insane asylum. <laughs> oh, no, I can't go on this way. 
Professor, how do I go about passing this on? You have someone in mind? Do I have to know a person? No, you could pass it to a stranger. Well, how? Simply brush up against someone in the street or on a bus or subway. See that he drops something. Then pick it up. And along with the package, you pass this piece of paper saying, uh, I believe this is yours. When they accept it, they have it, and you are rid of it. Oh, no, I couldn't do that to anybody. I just couldn't. Why not? If you don't believe in the curse. I don't know about the curse. I can't believe that it will actually kill anyone, but I know how I feel. That's, that is very real and horrible. Well? How, mu- how much... Time do I have? Today is the 23rd. The date here is the 28th. 10.53 p.m. There's not a lot of time, is there? Plenty, if you start to pass it now. No, I just can't, Professor. I'll, I wouldn't give this to my worst enemy, let alone... Hold it, hold it. How about... Rakatsi? I wondered how long you would take before you got around to that. Yes, of course. I'll pass it back to him. Uh, how? Well, I'll just... Uh... <laughs> exactly. Rakutsi obviously knows you. He is going to be on his guard. Well, can, can someone else pass it? No. It must be passed directly. There must be a way. <laughs> Where shall we meet? Uh, someplace where we can talk. How about, uh, Sherry's? Oh, I don't think we should be seen together. Well, that's not the kind of talk I had in mind, Liz. I know. I still don't think we should be seen together. You... You know? How? How about the cafeteria at the zoo? Yeah, okay, but Liz... Half an hour. Okay, see you. Just coffee. All right, I'll get it for you. No, no, I really don't want anything. Why did you call me? Liz, you wouldn't be surprised and go all girlish on me if I tell you it's because of your relationship with Rakatsi. No. Okay. Uh, this is going to sound crazy. Well, try me. Liz, I have to know everything you know about Rakatsi, not personal things, but... His schedule, his plans, that sort of thing. Oh. It's, it's terribly important, Liz. Yes. You're not going to ask me why? No. When I said it was a matter of life and death, I meant that. You'll have to believe me, Liz. Well, I do. You're, you're entitled to an explanation. And, and... You do? Yes. You know, I'm making a fool of myself. I'm talking to the wrong person. I, I just never even considered for a moment that you'd be in it with him. I'm not. But you know, you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Well, how? I'd rather not discuss it. Well, you've got to, Liz. Don't you see that? Isn't it enough for you to know that I realize you're in trouble and I want to help? All right, now it's my turn to ask why. No comment. But, Liz... You're wasting time in arguing. What can I do? I've already told you. But don't you see that I'll feel better if... If you can trust me? Yes, exactly. 
This isn't just fun and games for me, Liz. It's... It's... it's your life. Then you are in on it, huh? Look. I know about it. I'm involved. But I have as much to lose as you. Maybe more. And that's all I'm going to say. Do you think he can do it? More important, what makes you think he can? Everything I know tells me he cannot. Everything I know, everything I've learned, everything that science says doesn't help stop the terrible feeling I have that something, something is after me, Liz. It's it's just waiting, waiting until it has... 10.53 p.m. on the 28th. That's the date. What makes you think I can help? I have... One chance to break whatever spell Rokotsi has put on me. And what's that? It's just a slim chance, Liz, but a chance. Just take my word for that. If you do want to help, get me the information I want and need. I'll try. How do I reach you? Here. This number. Mm Any time, day or night. If I'm not there, I'll get back to you in five minutes. I'll try. Thanks, thanks. And Liz? Yes? We haven't got much time. Time is running out on Robert Anthony. Whatever it is that's following him, or what he honestly believes to be following him, has a target date. I'll be back shortly with Act Three. This is WBBM Chicago News Radio 78. Let us get back with Robert Anthony under a spell and convinced that he has now only 24 hours to live. The date set for his death is 10.53 p.m. on the 28th. And it is now the afternoon of the 27th. And Theodore Rakatsi has a visitor. Liz, come in, my dear, come in. I took the chance that you'd be home. Yes, and I am, and I'm delighted. Of course, I shan't be home for long. As you can see, my bags are all packed. Where are you going? Uh, to my little hideaway up in Perdis. Uh, you remember it? Of course. As a matter of fact, your dropping in might be called providential. I was going to call you to ask you to drive me. When are you leaving? Tomorrow night, uh, fairly early. I uh, think it would be wise for me to be out of the city when Anthony meets the demons. Oh, call it off, Ted. I beg your pardon? I'm asking you to call it off. Call what off, dear Liz? You're much too modern and liberated a young woman actually to believe in demons. Or even more fantastic, that that I can control them. Don't fence with me, Ted. Call it off. I wonder if I talked with Anthony today, would he write the same review of my book all over again? Or uh, would he have a more open mind? Why don't you ask him? I would like to. I would very much like to, but, uh, well, it's not practical. Uh, By the way, you haven't said you would drive me up to Perdis. I cannot. I'm sorry. Ted, I I really want... Cannot? Liz, have you forgotten our little wager? No. Don't you think you might owe it to me to be with me when we hear the news of Anthony's death? Ted... I'm asking you to call it off. Your bet or... The whole thing. Oh, my dear, 
I would like to. I would really like to please you. Mm-hmm. There are others involved. I don't understand. When you call upon these forces for help, you're taking a very serious step. It is understood that you're not indulging a whim. These forces do not like the idea of being used carelessly. They are not to be toyed with. I'm sure you could do something. It's really amazing how you have come full circle in your belief in my powers. (laughs) Would it help if I said I believe everything you claim? It would be an immeasurable aid to my ego. I mean... Would it would it help change your mind about Anthony? I admire you're not asking to get out of our wager. I sincerely admire you for that. Oh, save your admiration. I'm not asking to be released. I'm telling you that I'm not going through with it. Oh, you disappoint me, Liz. You really do. But I... I don't think you can withdraw. I can do what I want. And I don't want to play this game any longer. You have no choice. But I do. We're talking now about my soul. I don't know whether a person has a soul or not. Uh, take my word for it, Liz. You have a soul. Oh, fine. But it's mine. And I'm not giving it to anyone. You have already committed yourself. To what? To a bet made on the spur of the moment and not in any seriousness. I only made it to keep you happy. Whatever your motives, you made it. I intend to hold you to it. Hold me to what? An oral agreement? In the circles in which I move, it is binding. And I say no. That is most unwise. Are you threatening me? Of course. I think you should know that I will be powerless to help if you should change your mind. I'll remember that. I advise you to keep it very strongly in mind. And uh, along those lines, you won't change your mind about driving me to Perdis? I can't, really. Uh, Then I shall have to take the train. That seems obvious. I'm going to ask another favor. For your own sake, it is necessary that you be with me the day after I have won my wager. I would take it kindly if you would get me a ticket on the 9.30 to Purvis. Ted, I... I... believe there is such a train. And then I'll give you the keys to my car, and you can drive up the following day. What makes you think that... Because of our relationship, I've been extraordinarily patient with you, Liz. Now, you will do me these favors. It, uh may predispose me to have more patience with you on the day my wager is due. Hello? Bob? Oh, Liz, I've been waiting for your call. Do you have anything for me? I don't know whether or not it helps, but he's taking the 9.30 train to Purdy's on the 28th. 9.30? That doesn't give me much time. For what? For what I have to do. Liz, that makes it so close. Are you sure about the train and the time? Positive. I bought the ticket myself. 9.30, huh? Yes. Oh, that's going to be awfully close. Did he give any reason for picking that particular train? Well, first he asked me to drive him up. I said I couldn't. And then he told me to get the train ticket. He said... What? What did he say? It's not important. Liz, everything is important. What did he say? He said that he wants to be out of town when, when it happens. Oh, yeah, sure, that makes sense. Bob? Yes? It, it isn't going to happen, is it? Liz, I'm trying. Do you have, I mean, what, what do you honestly think of your chances? A lot better now than before you called. Is there anything else I can do? Yes, pray for me. And you for me. What? 
Why? How are you involved? Forget I said that. How can I forget Believe it? Believe me if I tell you that my problem is... Well, it has something to do with you. But I'll be okay if you're okay. Oh, you sound like a book title. Well, at least you can show. I hope it isn't gallows humor. Liz, I've got a lot to do. I have a plan. I don't know whether it'll work, but it's made me feel that I can do something. And I'm going to do it. Good luck. Bob Anthony! I didn't believe it when you called. How can I help you? I need a makeup job. For a TV appearance? No, 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 no. I must be disguised so that... Even my own mother wouldn't know me. Can you do that? Well, maybe if you tell me what it's for, it might help. No, no, I can't tell you. You'll have to take my word that it's deadly serious. Well, uh, how long will you need to wear the disguise? Oh, uh, four hours at the outside. How many people do you want to fool? One. A man. Uh-huh. How, uh, how well does he know you? Well, that's hard to say. He's not an intimate friend. In fact, I only met him once, but he knew me then. Uh, yeah, one, one more question. Hmm? How does this guy think of you? Oh, I suppose he sees me as a young, smart aleck. Good, good. So we have to make you old. Uh, step into my parlor. Okay. Aren't you going to lock it? Okay. Uh, sit in that chair over here. Yeah. Now relax. You're too tense. I'm sorry. See, now the hair piece is no problem. Your head and hairline are easy. But uh, the eyes. The eyes? Exactly. With the hair you have, you can't have those alert brown eyes. Uh, let me see. Watery blue with little veins running through them. Ah, yeah. Okay, now. Ever wear contact lenses? No, of course not. <laughs> You'll love them. <laughs> Slight effort. There. How's your vision? Well, I can see. Good, good. The wrinkles come last, and uh, I think a little goatee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bushy beard wouldn't be right. <laughs> now just put your head back. Grand Central Station in New York City at 9 o'clock of any evening is a dreary place. The waves of homebound commuters have washed away. The garish light serves only to point up the cruel deterioration of past grandeurs. The waiting rooms are almost empty. It was 9.20 exactly that Robert Anthony, carrying a small suitcase and disguised as an old man, walked slowly up to the ticket window. Uh, Mount Kisco, one way, please. Anthony walked slowly to the station platform where the 9.30 was about to depart. He wanted to be almost the last one to board the train so that he could locate the car that Rakatsi had selected. He boarded the train and passed through several cars and then his pounding heart slowed. He saw Rakatsi seated in the middle of the car and with a seat next to him, 
vacant. Excuse me, would you mind if I put my valise on the rack? Oh, not at all. Uh, let me help you. Oh, it's very kind. Not at all. Uh, you, you certainly cut that close. I'm afraid I don't walk as quickly as I used to. It's hard to get accustomed to growing old. Yes, I suppose it is. Uh, I hope you'll forgive an old man's curiosity, but that book you're reading... Uh, the dynamics of witchcraft. Yes, yes, that subject has always fascinated me. Uh, did you ever study it? No, no, but uh, when I was younger... Halloween was my favorite holiday. You know, dressing up and trick-or-treating. Yes, I know. Oh, that was such great fun. Uh, yes, yes. Well, I, uh, I won't disturb you anymore. I know you're anxious to get on with your eating, but uh, where, where are you getting off? Purtis. Is that before or after Mount Kisco? After. I, I wonder... I mean, I have a tendency to drowse off, you know. I wonder if when we reach Mount Kisco, hey, yes, would yes, be... I will let you know. Excuse me, is it... Uh, are we, it's uh, the next station. Uh, did you have a nice nap? Oh, yes, yes. Very refreshing. Thank you. I, uh... Do hope my nephew will be at the station. Yes, I'm sure he will. Oh, what time is it? Uh, Twenty past ten. Are we on time? Well, I don't know. I suppose so, but uh, even if we're running late, I'm sure your nephew will wait. Yes, I hope so. And when you get old, you seem to worry about everything. <laughs> the young have their worries. But they're not the same, are they? <laughs> Sometimes they are. Sometimes a young man can worry himself almost to death. Oh, that seems such a waste. Or even worry about dying. <laughs> yes. I have known some young people who are simply terrified of dying. Oh, I didn't think the young gave much thought to death. Oh, some of them do. Some of them do indeed. Uh, take my word for it. That seems strange. Strange? Old men, I could tell you stories that are beyond belief. Stories that... I seem to be talking a lot. Well, I enjoy it. Thank you, but uh, we're coming into Mount Kisco. Oh, well, I've enjoyed talking to you. And now I'll just get my luggage put the rack. Oh, 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 my. Look what I've done. I've dropped my bag. Uh, here, let me help no, you. No, 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 no. I've caused you too much trouble. I'll be able to. Oh, oh, your book. I just seem to make things worse. If you will let me do it, it will be much simpler. Oh, yes, yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But do let me return your book. I believe this is yours. Uh, yes, yes. And now you'd better start if you want to get off and meet your nephew. Yes, yes. Goodbye and thank you. Wait, what? You, you bastard. The paper. Please, let go of me, my nephew. Stop acting. You're Anthony. I know it. Yes, you're right. And I'm getting off here. Not until you tell me where you hid the curse. That paper you passed to me. Miss your train. Damn the train. Where is it? The paper. I'll do anything. But you know how close it is. This very little time. I beg you, please, for the love of God, tell me where you put that paper. It's in the book. I slipped it in the book when I gave it back to the book. The book. Where? Where? Oh, my God. Catch it. Catch it, Anthony. Grab it. No way, Rakosi. Uh, get it yourself. It's blowing away. You know I'm lost if I don't get that paper. Come back. Come back. I'll get you. Rakosi. Look out. The train. Our story of 
witchcraft and demons. The obituary notice said that Theodore Rakatsi met his death when he inexplicably ran in front of a southbound express at the Mount Kisco station. Inexplicably? I'll be back shortly. I'm sure we all know what the forces were that made Theodore Rakatsi run in front of the train that killed him. He panicked because of a superstitious belief in the supernatural. That, of course, is the explanation. Or is it? Our cast included Norman Rose, Larry Haynes, Evie Juster, Roger DeCoven, and Gil Mack. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. And now, a preview of our next tale. You claim to be an Indian. You talk about fighting and wars. Well, that would be before the white men came to this country. I've never seen men like you and these others. There is one small detail that troubles me. How does it happen you speak English? I don't know. You don't know. I don't know. I was returning to my people. They live near the banks of the Great River. The Great River? The Potomac. Ah. As I told you, something took place in the mist. I awoke. Now, now I am in a strange place. I find that I can speak the language, but I don't know what anything means. Where is this place? Who are you? I'm your doctor, your friend. My name is Carl Stitzer. And who am I? This is E.G. Marshall inviting you to return to our mystery theater for another adventure in the macabre. Until next time, pleasant dreams. that ever walked the earth was the Stegosaurus. It weighed approximately 80,000 pounds, yet its brain weighed only three second brain and its tail to control its massive hind legs. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the strange fate of Lord Brooke. Lord Brooke bombarded the Cathedral of Litchfield, England to rubble. He then assured his shocked troops that the act would be acknowledged by a sign from heaven. If he was expecting a sign, he certainly got much more than he bargained. The building known as St. Chad's Cathedral was destroyed on St. Chad's Day. And then, a few moments later, a bullet that pierced one of his eyes. Believe it or not.
We are back. That was CBS Radio Mystery Theater with their adaptation of Casting the Runes by M.R. James called This Will Kill You. That brings us to the end of this week's program, dear listener. That also means that it's time for a little housekeeping. First, I would like to point out that we now have a form for our dear listeners to submit suggestions for stories to use on this program. All the details you need are on that, and the link will be in the show notes. However, we would like to remind our listeners that this program currently only will air stories that are confirmed to be in the public domain. All incidental music heard on this program is courtesy of TabletopAudio.com. Tabletop Audio music for wherever you work, podcast, or play Dungeons & Dragons. Finally, if you've enjoyed this program or any of our other fine shows here on Radio for Humans, please consider signing up for our Patreon, which will be launching soon. To celebrate, we'll be having a special event to encourage people to sign up. Remember, all of your support goes to keeping commercial-free radio programs as well as commercial-free music on the air all day, every day, for your listening pleasure. As always, yours cruelly thanks you for taking time from your day to join me. I'll keep a seat ready for you, so please come back. Until next time, dear listener, I wish you well. Take care and unpleasant dreams. Dreadtime Stories Back from the Grave is a production of Adam Hebert for Radio for Humans and Approved Podcasting Platforms. Neither the producer nor Radio for Humans claim anything as their own intellectual property that they themselves have not created. <laughs>